Welcome to Green Bites, Sustainable Asia's weekly environmental news podcast. I'm Shermaine Lee, and I'm Bonnie Out. In less than ten minutes, we offer you bite-sized green updates in Asia we think you should know about. Hey, Shemaine, what's the biggest news to you these days? Hey, Bonnie, I don't think there's any more important than what's happening in Afghanistan. After the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan, the Taliban gradually took control of the country, including the capital city of Kabul, last week. The horror started. People were shot in the streets. Residents scrambled to the airport, but many failed to flee. Women and girls were forced to leave their workplaces and schools. It's heartbreaking to say the least. My heart goes out to people living in Afghanistan right now. With the Taliban ruling Afghanistan, violence isn't our only concern. Environmentalists say that the Taliban now have access to the huge deposits of minerals in the country that are crucial to the global clean energy economy. Oh, which kind of minerals do they have? Well, Afghanistan is rich in rare earth elements like copper and cobalt. But the crown jewel is lithium. The U.S. called Afghanistan the Saudi Arabia of lithium, as American geologists put the value of the country's mineral wealth at at least one trillion U.S. dollars. We covered how countries in Asia, including China, Japan, and South Korea, are pushing ahead to put more electric vehicles on the road and phase out fossil fueled cars in previous episodes. Although China is the world's top lithium producer. Afghanistan tightly follows, and its metal is still essential for such a transition and renewable energy batteries. Lithium is indeed an earth-shakingly important mineral. The International Energy Agency said in a report that the global demand for this mineral is projected to shoot up 40-fold, above 2020 levels by 2040. Luckily, in the last decade. These resources have not yet been exploited due to conflict, corruption, and bureaucratic dysfunction in the country. But now that the Taliban is in control of these minerals, experts are unsure whether they can exploit them in the future. Some even warn that the rich minerals can potentially breed corruption and violence, as the Taliban has a history of illegally tapping into the country's minerals as a source of revenue. Since the Taliban has been struggling to maintain basic public services in cities, they might not have enough resources to mine minerals and strike deals in the near future. But some experts say China and Russia are extending diplomatic ties with the Taliban, so China could still be motivated by rare earth and lithium mining opportunities in Afghanistan. If so, mining can create even more environmental hazards to vulnerable people, including increased risks of water scarcity, air pollution, and extreme weather events related to climate change. This really adds fuel to the raging fire. Environmentally speaking, Afghanistan is already grappling with prolonged droughts that are disrupting food supply. The annual wheat harvest in the country is expected to fall by nearly half, while millions of livestock are now at risk of death. 
Scientists said that global warming, driven by greenhouse gas emissions, is contributing to extreme weather around the world. Fahad Said, a climate scientist at Climate Analytics, told Reuters that Afghanistan is experiencing a so-called climate injustice, as it has no role historically in climate change, but they are bearing the brunt of it. The United Nations identified the country as one of the hunger hotspots in the world, with one third of the national population facing a food security crisis. The Taliban was accused of obstructing rescue efforts earlier this month. When flash floods killed over 110 people and injured 70 in Kamidas district in Afghanistan, the Taliban said it was trying to prevent government forces infiltration to flood-hit areas and promised relief funds of 62,000 U.S. dollars, but it is widely believed that they aren't equipped to deal with the crisis. Hey, Bunny. Do you remember that you joked that you have a second stomach for desserts at the team gathering last time? Yeah, of course. Who can resist a matcha ice cream, right? Oh, I definitely would not say no to that. As it turns out, cows have four chambers in what's considered their stomach. Many mistake that they have four stomachs because the four compartments are active in digestion. Their digestive system has become a source of inspiration for a startup in India's Bangalore, which mimics the cow's four-chambered stomach to decontaminate wastewater. That's interesting. The United Nations said in a report that 80% of wastewater is dumped back into the ecosystem without treatment. So this innovation can be a low-cost solution to this emerging issue that leads to poor sanitation and diseases. So how does it work? There is a challenge the current wastewater treatment plants is struggling with. It's expensive to feed oxygen to bacteria that help break down the waste, as blower motors have to be constantly used. But now, a Bengaluru resident, Tarunkuma, turned to cows. Their four stomach chambers contain bacteria that do not need oxygen. As grass passes through these chambers, the bacteria break it down into smaller parts, eventually converting it to gas, nutrients, water, and waste. Wow, that's pretty inspiring. Now, in Bangalore, wastewater is a serious issue. The lakes in the city contain so much sewage that they even catch fire. In 2018, a blaze on the city's largest lake. Burned for over 30 hours and rained down ash in the city. Certainly, it's not the water that was on fire, but it's a mix of the domestic and industrial waste. So, how are they going to source this bacteria that doesn't need oxygen? They built a plant that mimics the chamber structure and took the bacteria from cow dung. Without the use of blower motors, the treatment plants don't even require electricity to operate. Instead, they rely on gravity to move wastewater across the chambers. The wastewater is then converted into gas and clear water for safe use. The company has now built about 50 treatment plants. While Kuma said the innovation has saved 280 million liters of water and 315 gigawatt of electricity that can power 35 villages in India for a year. Hey, Shermaine. Apart from the Amazon rainforest, do you know of any other rainforest that consists most of the species and rich landscapes? I guess the one in Jakarta, right? 
But I'm not sure whether it is still one of the Earth's most biologically and culturally rich landscapes or not, as it is located in the Indonesian Papua region. The government allocated millions of hectares of land to be developed into industrial plantations and the development of new roads. Yeah, deforestation is pretty common in developing countries. Can you imagine land of nearly five times the size of London has been destroyed in the past two decades in Indonesian New Guinea, home to Asia Pacific's largest area of the intact old growth forest? It's definitely sad to hear that the primary rainforest is reducing in a very dramatic rate. The loss of the rainforest is mainly due to the growth of plantations, primarily oil palms, and the government's push for infrastructure development in the region, such as the recent one, the Trans Papua Highway project. Though some argue that deforestation might bring accessibility to remote and neglected communities, commercial interests dominating local needs can bring adverse effects. That projects can cause harm to forests, indigenous people, and biodiversity. Yeah, and it has destroyed the habitats of wild animals and threatened the already endangered endemic species in Papua, and resulted in a negative impact on biodiversity. Not to mention that it will also produce massive greenhouse gases that intensify global warming. Papua is the last frontier of natural forests in Southeast Asia, and is one of the world heritages because natural forests do play an important role in stabilizing the climate and preserving biodiversity. Therefore, the government needs to have a longer-term vision that strikes a balance between boosting economic development and environmental protection. No one is more familiar than the locals living there. So why don't the government give indigenous Papuans greater autonomy to manage their forests? Now, a study points out that some communities in remote regions in Papua have been able to protect large areas of land and forests in a near pristine state, even though government oversight has been largely absent. If degraded forests can be protected from further disruption and conversion, more than half of them will recover. I totally agree with that. Just let the locals living there decide what's best for their livelihoods and their environment. They know their forest the best. So this is all we have for this week's Green Bites. If you have any news stories you think we should highlight, let us know on our social media platforms with the hashtag #ShareYourBite. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast channels for more content and share our podcast with your friends and family. If you're interested in sponsoring Green Bites or have any comments about our content, we would love to hear from you. Email us using communications at sustainableasia.com or drop us a line on social media. Our handle is at sustainableasia. Thanks for listening.